later. Well, uh, thanks again for being here this morning. We are continuing to work our way through uh, the Gospel of Luke, and we've arrived at chapter 7. If you have your Bible with you, you might notice chapter 7 is a long chapter, and there are four stories that happen in chapter 7, and I'm going to read to you the first and the fourth of those four stories. I'll talk about the middle two because I can't resist, but I'm going to read to you the first and the fourth. So let's prepare our hearts and engage God's word together. This is Luke chapter 7. After Jesus had finished teaching all this to the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave who was highly regarded, but who was sick and at the point of death. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they urged him earnestly, he is worthy to have you do this for him because he loves our nation and even built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not presume to come to you. Instead, say the word, and my servant must be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. He turned and said to the crowds that followed him, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave well. Now jumping to the end of the chapter. Now, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Then when a woman of that town, who was a sinner, learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with the perfumed oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 silver coins, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfumed oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven. Thus, She loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, as we're quiet together, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, you are good. Everything you do is good. Show us your ways. We believe, Lord, but help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said, we just read the first and the fourth story that make up uh, Luke chapter 7. There's four scenes in Luke chapter 7, and Um, You guys who know me, you know that it kind of kills me to skip those middle two. Uh, The the second one is this amazing scene. Jesus goes to a different town, the town of Nain, which is maybe a day walk away from Capernaum. And he happens upon a funeral procession. This young man has just died and all the people are weeping. And his mom is a widow. And so she is ruined. She's destitute uh, because her son was kind of her only security and he's died. And Jesus stops the procession, tells her, stop weeping and touches uh, the, you know, the plank that they're carrying the guy on and, and, you know, says, get up. <laughs> and he, he rises from the dead. So all of the people, of course, say like, whoa, a great prophet has risen amongst us. And, and they're remembering stories where, where Elijah did a very similar thing in the Old Testament. So, you know, what does this mean? And, and word spreads. And that leads to the third story, which is word makes it all the way to John the Baptist, who's in prison. And John the Baptist hears the news about this, and he sends his disciples to Jesus with a question. You know, based on the things that he heard, the question is, who are you? Are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? So when Jesus raised the boy, they're, they're uh, you know, proclaiming about his identity. He's a great prophet. And that raises the question for John, who, who are you? John's curious about his identity and and Jesus then you know cites all of these amazing things that have been happening miracles you know the dead rising like the the story the the blind seeing the the lepers are cleansed the poor have good news preached to them you know he all that to say yeah <laughs> the evidence speaks for itself then he gives a little speech about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist is the the you know, prophesied voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. It's a subtle, not so subtle way to say, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. So those are the middle two stories. And they're both, you know, there's a lot going on there. Both, both of them are wrestling with who is Jesus, his identity. And there's those, that question is supporting what I think is, is the key idea in the stories that we just heard the first and the fourth. This amazing story about the centurion um, and the story about the 
the woman who's a sinner, which you know probably means she's a prostitute. Now, from the outside, these two people, they seem as different as two people could possibly be. One of them is a, uh, he's a Roman, he's a military officer, he's, so he's got a lot of sort of political power, he's got a lot of strength behind him. But not only that, but he lives in this Jewish town, Capernaum, right on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, and all the Jews like him too. I mean, this guy's a popular guy. He's, he knows how to win friends and influence people. So he is on, you know, in, in terms of Capernaum, which is a small, beautiful little town on the, you know, right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, um, where, you know, Peter grew up and Jesus hung out for a few years. Um, in the town of Capernaum, he is the top. I mean, he is the probably the most powerful person in town. In the fourth story, you have this scene at the Pharisee's house, and, you know, this woman sneaks in, and, and life circumstances have led to this. She's a, she's a Jewish woman, but they have led her into a trade where she effectively needs to sell her body in order to survive. She is uh, disregarded, disrespected. Anywhere she goes, anytime she shows her face in public, she is risking public shame. She's risking, you know, arrest by the sort of religious authorities. She could be executed if she's caught in the act. She is constantly at risk. She is the very bottom. So you have someone who's the very top and the very bottom of all society in these two stories. And they both come, they both approach Jesus. One approaches Jesus from a distance. One gets uncomfortably, sort of, you know, defies etiquette, gets so close to him. So what do these stories have to do with each other? In both stories, the climax of the story, the last thing that Jesus says about these two people is about their faith. The last thing. After, after the centurion sends his friends to Jesus and says, hey, I'm an officer. I get how this works. I get how authority works. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus effectively says, wow, wow. I mean, he's, like, he's amazed. It's one of two places in all the gospels that Jesus is amazed at somebody's faith. And then with this woman, this whole thing happens and, and there's questions about does Jesus know who she is and what's the deal and, 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 you know, he forgives her and they're all questioning why does he forgive her and then Jesus turns and says your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Saved her from what? We don't, we don't even know what she's asking for. But the last thing that Jesus says about these two people is about their faith. This is no coincidence in the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote this, all of these stories, to increase the faith of his readers. I mean, it, it's, Luke is written to most excellent Theophilus, who out of anyone in all of the Gospel of Luke can probably relate to this centurion the most. Theophilus is probably an influential Roman guy who's, who's friendly, at least, to the, the stories about Jesus. He's, he wants to learn more. He probably hired Luke to pull all the stories together. And so, you know, when, when Luke introduces all of the stories, he says, I wrote all of this so that you could be certain of the things that you've heard. Luke wrote it, in other words, 
so that Theophilus' faith would be established. The point of all of it is to grow our faith. These stories are meant to teach us something about faith. Faith is an interesting thing in the, in the gospel of Luke. You have um, the last people you'd expect showing impressive faith. A Roman and a prostitute. They're, they're, this is only one other time has Jesus noticed somebody's faith. That's the four friends who brought the paralytic to Jesus and lowered him down through uh, the roof. Um, this is the second and third time where Jesus mentions faith. Whenever... Whenever faith is mentioned for Jesus' guys, his apostles, they're struggling with it. They're like us. Like, you, we jump in and we follow Jesus, and then it's like, how do, how do we do this? Like, what, how do I keep applying this? You know, they, you know, Jesus at one time says, you know, oh, ye of little faith. And, and another time they cry out to him. He's t- talking about challenging stuff. They say, Lord, increase our faith. I mean, they wrestle with faith. But these two, they teach us something about faith. So, what is faith? Um, Okay, we use faith sort of generically, don't we? We use that term generically. If I say, well, I'm taking it on faith that that would work out. It means I didn't really know. I didn't really have all the evidence. I wasn't sure, but but I kind of, you know, I took the leap. I, you know, I, I trusted that it would work out if we're taking something on faith. So we use faith, you know, that term sometimes to describe the gap, the space between what I know and, you know, the idea that's out there. We use, we use faith as the term to describe the leap that we make. You know, uh, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard called it a faith, a blind leap in the dark. You know, we use faith like that, that idea. And, and, and because of that, we think, well, as soon as I see something, as soon as I get proof, it's not faith anymore. It's something else. You know, so we use faith like that. But we also use faith um, kind of one step closer to what I want us to think about faith. We use faith uh, as trust. So if there's somebody that you've depended on many, many times, you know, to, you know, to whatever, to, to show up on time or whatever, and they've, they've done it over and over again, you you have general confidence that it's going to happen the next time. You're not worried about it. We, we have faith in that person. Faith and trust are actually interchangeable words almost anywhere that we find them in the Bible. In fact, the Greek word is the same word. You know, you might see trust in some passages and faith in others. It's the same Greek word. And if we think about faith as trust, it means there's someone who's earned it, so to speak. Someone that it's aimed at. In fact, uh, Mike Kirstens and I were talking this week about this. And, and um, you know, Mike works at a, a behavioral health clinic. And, um, and he, he works with a lot of people who are experiencing pretty tough stuff at that season in their life and often the conversation will lead to somebody saying to Mike I've just I've just lost hope and and what Mike said uh, you know what, what Mike does so kindly is lead them to the question of hope in in what you know hope and trust are things that we aim at something or somebody 
But if they're just generic ideas, yeah, we do lose it because we're not really sure even what we mean. We're just trying to have a good attitude about something. But that's not what we mean when we say faith. I mean, okay, generically, any conviction about the way things are, the big story, is faith, right? I mean, we also use faith to, to talk about our big sense of things. You know, sometimes, you know, religious people are called people of faith because we have a big story that we think kind of holds things together. But it turns out that's actually true of everyone, uh, everyone has some sort of way that they're explaining this big, complicated universe and all of the surprising things that happen in the midst of it. You know, even saying that it's just random chaos is a statement of faith, is a statement of this is the way I think things fit together. But if we get closer to our passage, I think wherever someone lands in terms of their big story, the best faith, the faith that's closest to this, it looks at evidence. It, it, it's, it's based on some understanding of something. It looks at the evidence. You know, I told, I told you about the middle two stories. You know, when John sends his disciples to say, are you the one or is there another one coming? How does Jesus answer? He doesn't just say, yes, you know, take it on faith. He says, you know, the sick are healed, the dead are raised, the blind have sight, the poor have good news preached to them. He gives them evidence. Faith grows when we see more evidence. C.S. Lewis famously went from being an atheist to an agnostic to being a Christian believer. And he, he talks about faith as something which stands on evidence rather than uh, whatever our moods lead to. I, I, I love this quote. He says, faith, in the sense in which I am here using the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Hmm. So, I want us to get clear about faith today. What, what isn't, what, what, do, what do I not mean? What faith isn't? Let's talk about that. Faith isn't, like I said, Kierkegaard's thing. Um, I, I disagree with Kierkegaard. It's not a blind leap in the dark. I don't think that's the faith that's going on here. In a sense, faith depends on knowledge. It, it needs to be aimed at something. And the more we see of that thing, the deeper our faith in it. Faith um, so faith depends on knowledge, first point. But second, uh, we need to know that the faith, it is not this like powerful force in and of itself. And that can get confusing in the Bible. 
even in these two stories, you know, Jesus is impressed at the centurion's faith and, and then this miracle happens. And he says to the woman, your faith has made you well. You know, he looks at the four paralytic friends and he sees their faith and, and, uh, and then the paralytic is healed. There's, there's multiple times throughout the gospel of Luke where Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. And it sounds like he's saying that the faith is the thing that healed them that the faith was they had sort of enough of this right substance or this right attitude or whatever, and, and that's what healed them. And the bummer about that, um, that interpretation of this is that we often end up in a place where things are going right and, and we're praying and we're asking God to do it and it still doesn't go the way we were hoping it would go, whether it's healing or whatever that we're hoping for. And we say, I must not have had enough faith. And what we're doing effectively is we're making faith more powerful than God. Like the faith is the thing that we're putting. We're trying to have more faith in faith, which is a weird idea. I don't know that that's what this is teaching us about faith. Um, Some of you know one of my go-to theologians is Shirley Guthrie. Listen to what he has to say about faith. He says, it is often said that instead of the idea of our good works, instead of the idea that our good works make us acceptable to God, Protestantism teaches that that all we have to do is have faith in order to win God's approval and acceptance. This is a serious distortion because it only substitutes another requirement that we must fulfill in order to earn salvation. In the last analysis, it makes us just as insecure as does justification by other means. Instead of anxiously examining my life to discover whether it is good enough, now I must anxiously examine my faith to see whether it is sure and strong enough to earn God's love. But according to scripture and true Protestantism, Neither our good works nor our faith justifies us. God alone does it by God's free grace in Christ. Okay, so if that's true, what could Jesus mean when he says their faith, you know, has saved them? Here's, I think, what he means. In Guthrie's words, faith is the indispensable means by which we accept and live from God's love. What Guthrie is getting at here is this. Imagine a marriage. The wife could um, deeply, truly, genuinely love her husband, but if the husband doubts that love, thinks he hasn't earned it, questions her motives, doesn't trust it, he will simply never be able to enjoy the relationship, right? Wouldn't that be the case? Even if one party just genuinely, fully loved the other, if the other was like, I don't think you actually love me, they would never be able to enter in and enjoy that love. That's what this is talking about. When Guthrie is describing faith as the indispensable means by which we accept and live from God's love, he's saying it's a matter of saying, I trust you when you say you love me. I have to keep reading to you from Guthrie because it's so good. He says, Our faith does not force or enable God to love us, 
but it is our way of acknowledging, receiving, enjoying, and returning the love that God had for us long before we ever thought of loving God. We are not made right with God by our faith, but we are made right with God through our faith. Our faith does not change God from being against us into being for us, but it does change us from being closed to being open to receive the love God always had for us. And I think that's what we see throughout Luke chapter 7. And I want to finish with just three observations from Luke chapter 7. First, look, look at the centurion's faith. When the centurion sends people and, and they get sort of the secondhand speech of the centurion, that I'm a man under authority, I know like when I send people, they go. When I call people, they come. And so you, you can do this. There's the, the centurion is responding to something about Jesus that no one else has grasped yet. He understands that Jesus' authority is similar to what he sees in the Roman army. That Jesus has the, the type of authority over sickness and death and disease that a Roman officer has over his troops. The centurion is responding to Jesus as he truly is. That's what was so different about the centurion. It, it made... It made Jesus say, wow. So what's it like to respond to Jesus as he truly is? Um, I'm sorry, I'm like one of the few basketball fans in the room, but the Nuggets recently won, so more of you are basketball fans right now than, than before. So that's good. But this one's especially for you, Jesse. So there's a, there's a scene, uh, a, a great scene this, this last season. It wasn't from a game. Um, it, you know, it's a Laker game, and this this girl, this young girl, maybe a, she's probably a young teenager. She's, she's got great seats. She's sitting courtside, and there's an empty seat next to her. And it happened to be a game that LeBron wasn't playing. I don't remember an injury or, or he's resting or whatever. And, um, you know, people go to a Laker game to see LeBron James. That's why they go. And so she's sitting there watching the game. And early on in the game, this tall, well-dressed man comes and sits down in the seat next to her. And the camera just happened to be rolling. And it caught her. She didn't realize what was happening. And, and she turns and sees that it's LeBron James sitting next to her and just and like was frozen like this for a long time. I should have showed you the video. But she realized she is responding to this superstar as he really is. I mean, she's a Laker fan. She's there at the game. And there he is sitting next to her. She's sitting next to one of the greatest players ever watching a basketball game. And we can do that in a similar way with reference to Jesus. Just last night, um, my family and I had dinner with some friends that we've met through um, the Awana program here, and and um, just just such a dear couple, and they're sharing about uh, their faith and their story, and and um, every time that they mentioned Jesus, they had such a close relationship with Jesus, but every time they mentioned Jesus, they didn't just say Jesus, they said the Lord Jesus Christ. They kept, there was such a, an honor and, and a respect toward Jesus every time they mentioned him. I mean, these, these people, they, they, you know, they're, they're constantly talking about their awareness of Jesus with them, and yet it's always the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They recognized his dignity, his honor, and his authority. They used his title as a way of responding to Jesus as he really is. So as far as you have discovered who Jesus is, faith brings that information to bear and responds to Jesus as he is. So true faith depends on knowledge. In fact, John Calvin describes faith like this. He defines it like this. He says, faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Faith depends on knowledge. But second, faith grows in community. All right, and this also happens with the centurion. Um, this is a this is a really important angle on faith that we can easily miss. But the first time faith is mentioned, it's the four friends who bring their friend in need to Jesus. Jesus sees their faith and heals the friend. This second time, when faith shows up, the centurion is the one who has the faith, and the servant is the one who's healed. There's something happening in community where the faith is a shared communal practice. I mean, we don't pray my father in heaven. We pray our father in heaven. Faith is something that we practice together. All right. When Jesus saw their faith to the four friends, the, 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 this um, expression of faith impacts someone Else. I mean, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, and we'll get to this in a couple chapters, he, he uses a story to teach them to pray. He tells them this story about, about someone who receives a, an unexpected visitor late at night, and so they go to their neighbor to ask for food to feed the unexpected visitor. Like, they, they're going to someone and asking for help for someone else. There's this community thing that's happening. And Jesus says, that's how we should pray. That's how we approach God. Our faith is approaching God, not just for ourselves, but for other people. Faith becomes possible when we put ourselves in a situation in which we can hear about and experience God's love over and over again. And Shirley Guthrie says such a situation is, first of all, the church, the community of God's people. Faith is communal. It's not for me alone. It's not for you alone. It's a gift that you receive from God in order to share with the community. Friends, if your hearts were sort of burning as we sang together this morning, it's because we're responding in faith to one another. To this, this, that gentle faith that was pouring out on us as our, as our friends were leading us in worship. That's what happens. Faith, biblical faith, cannot stay internal, secret, and mysterious. It is trust that God has saved me through Jesus so that I can share him with others. This week I had to, uh, I had to replace the pump in my evaporative cooler. Our house got really hot at the wrong time. You know, it broke on the wrong week. It was 90 degrees inside my house, so which is quite hot. And uh, so I realized the pump is broken, and I had to learn how it all works and do it and watch YouTube videos and, 
and that's what you do to fix things now. And so, um, so you know, I'm putting put this, the old pump was just pumping a little bit, but here's, the, here's how a, a pump works, you know, in a fountain or evaporative cooler or whatever. It has to be, the, the right part of it has to be submerged in water, and then it pulls the water in, and then it pushes the water out, right? That's, that's what a pump does. And so faith, I think, is just like that. Faith needs a source. It has to be put in the source. But faith, for faith to work properly, it's flowing through the person. Faith is that action like a pump. And that's what the centurion shows us. He has faith in Jesus for someone else. And that's an encouragement to me. The last thing I want to point out is what faith looks like with this woman. Here's what happens in my evaporative cooler. The pump pulls the water up, and there's this pad that gets wet, and that's what evaporates, okay? Um, this isn't a sermon on evaporative coolers, so I'll stop there. But so, And the water goes into this pad, and it drops down through the pad, and it goes back to the source. So it makes this cycle, this kind of slow cycle, aside from what gets blown into my house. And that's what the woman is doing. You see, the woman expresses her faith as an act of gratitude. It's such a beautiful story. Jesus is having dinner at the home of a Pharisee. We don't know the circumstances for that. Usually Jesus and Pharisees are kind of opposed to each other and struggling with each other, but there he is having dinner. The, and the Pharisee seems to be observing Jesus to try to make a judgment about him, to try to figure out what is his deal. And, and you know, in, in first century Roman culture, uh, in Roman culture, not necessarily Jewish culture, this wouldn't be that rare of a thing. If there's two teachers who uh, disagree about something, they would have dinner together to have deep philosophical discussions. And in fact, at those dinners, what would often happen is, you know, their, their uh, philosophical discussion would be lubricated by wine. You know, there'd be a, a lot of wine flowing and, and the people serving the wine uh, would be these, these people called flute girls. And the flute girls provided all sorts of entertainment, some of which is appropriate to, would be appropriate to talk about in church and others which would not be appropriate to talk about in church. I mean, that's, that was a, a sort of a common cultural practice. I don't think that's what's happening at Simon's house, but I think that's what Theophilus is picturing when he hears this story and he hears about this woman who's come in. All of us say, well, how did a prostitute get into this dinner at a Pharisee's house, right? That's what we all wonder, but... But Theophilus hears it, and, and it's not surprising to him. You know, likely it was happening in the courtyard, and there were servants coming in and out serving the meal, and, and often people would come in in, the, in those parties to beg, you know, from the guests. And so she probably came in that way, and she heard that Jesus was there, and she decided to risk so much by showing up. She decided to risk her dignity, what little she had left. She could be publicly shamed. She could be arrested for showing up. She, she could be beaten for showing up at this party. And she comes and makes her way to the guest's feet, and it's, it is uncomfortably intimate. I mean, the oil that she has is what she uses for aroma for her trade, all right? This is, she depends on this stuff, and she breaks it on Jesus' feet. 
and she's weeping. And I mean, can you picture the scene? She's, she's let down her hair and she's using her hair to wipe his feet. It is so intimate and so strange and so uncomfortable. And Simon just sits back and says, hmm, Jesus must not be who he says he is because he would know to send her away if he did. Big mistake, of course. Jesus turns it around and exposes what sort of man Simon is. Simon didn't show Jesus any respect when he came in. This woman did it all for him. And so he turns to her and says, your faith has saved you. What faith? What faith is she expressing? Her faith is entirely poured out in love to Jesus. It is gratitude. It is, she is overwhelmingly moved by this man who shows love and welcome and mercy and kindness and dignity to her. That is her faith. Her faith is praise back to him. Faith is an act at its best. It's an act of gratitude as we recognize what he's done for us. Why? Why do we show gratitude as an act of faith? One last quote from Robert McAfee Brown. He gives us a strong answer. The gospel does not say, trust God and he will love you. The gospel says, God already loves you, so trust him. Faith is not a work that saves us. It is our acknowledgement that we are saved. That's what she's doing. And she is our example for how to do this with Jesus. Faith is based on a knowledge of who Jesus is. She knows better than Simon the Pharisee who Jesus is. It's practiced in community. We pour it out with one another at Jesus' feet. And it's effusive, worshipful gratitude. Friends, this table down in front of me is a way to practice our faith together. It's an invitation to see yourself as the sinful woman. You guys all snuck in through the back and got in here somehow. What are you doing here? If only you knew who I was, you would wonder why I'm allowed to stand at this side of the table. And if I really knew who you were, I'd wonder why you're coming, right? I mean, my goodness, This is our chance to practice this. And yet again and again, we hear the story of who he is, what he has done for us, and the welcome that he gives us. And we have one table here. Now, other churches do it differently, and that doesn't mean that they don't believe in the one table. But but as we're lining up in just a minute, I want you to look around and see people of many different ages many different backgrounds, many different educations, many, many different ability and disability places in our lives. We have all sorts of mistakes that we've made, all sorts of things that are good, you know, all sorts of financial situations. And here we are communally gathering at the one table together. Friends, we get to practice our faith by coming to this table and sharing this with one another. That's what this table is all about. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, take this and eat all of you. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim what we know. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our faith is based on knowledge that Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. And Jesus will come again. Let's respond to him as he really is. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for the great grace that you pour out on us. Thank you that that grace is the source for us that turns into our faith being expressed to one another, for one another, back to you. Hallelujah. You are so good to us. Increase our faith, Lord, and we struggle with it. Lord, as we come to this table, here's the deal. Help our unbelief. We have so much. I have so much. Help me with it. Help me to trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen.